This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Taylor Stevens, the New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of Kick-Ass International Thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And we are once again live on video, although of course it'll just be recorded, <laughs> but I wanted to say live, and so I got, I got to do that. So another Hack the Craft episode, Taylor's going to be line editing today, so there's no chit-chat, we're going to get right to it. So Taylor, you are up. Well, thank you. So we are still going on with this material that was sent in to us by MZLO. And last week we had gone on and done the whole flashback sequence. So it started with this whole thing started with this material and a series of very, very good questions. And it took quite a few episodes before we even got to the actual material, which was supposed to focus on flashbacks because we were answering these fantastic, amazing questions and ended up with the mother of all tutorials on a few very key subjects, including character motivation. I mean, bringing characters to life and engaging emotional connection investment from, through, from the readers. So last week we were able to get the flashback segment worked on. And this week we're going to work on the whole piece together. So for listeners who might just be tuning in now or for anyone who's listening to this long after the fact and doesn't really remember what we're talking about, this material was sent to us by author M.Z. Lowe. It is part of a paranormal cozy mystery. And setting us up for this segment, this segment is leading us into the story climax, which occurs in the next chapter. Becca is the main character, and that we're in her POV. It's not her real name. I'm notorious for butchering character names and so the author was very smart and changed all the names of the characters to make them easy for me to pronounce (laughs) and so in this scene becca and patty have just rushed to a parking lot where tom and fred are fighting over patty's love and attention tom and fred are animal human shifters so stopping the fight is unrealistic for either woman the original goal from the author in her words, was instead of focusing on the fight for the tension of the scene, I want to focus on Becca's feeling of helplessness to stop the fight. I decided to bring bits of flashback to heighten her tension by triggering a traumatic time in Becca's life when she also felt helpless. Because this is a cozy, I need to treat the current and past violence with a lighter touch, but also evoke tension. So in the previous episode, we tackled all the flashback parts of it. And now we're going to go back and look at the segment as a whole. We're going to start again with the raw material, which now integrates the portion that we worked over on the previous episode. So you're going to hear the writing voice kind of change. I apologize for that. There's no way for me to truly maintain another author's voice as much as I try. So you're going to feel the switch in that. That's on me. That's not a problem with the author. And after we've read the raw material, I'm going to give you 
my overall thoughts on what we're looking at, and then we'll move into more specific line edits and suggestions. So I'm going to try and keep this all into one episode. It may run us over time, but we're going to try and not let it get too, too long. So this segment begins mid-scene at the parking lot. Here is the original. If you're following along on screen, you'll see the part that I integrated from last week is bolded to separate it from the rest. But other than that, it's just as I received it. Patty yelled, stop it, you bloody bastards. That caught their attention. Tom's nose was bleeding and Fred sported a black eye, but they refused to let go of each other's throat. They panted hard and growled, their animals pushing to the fore. Patty strode toward the men. I am not some freaking prize at a jousting match. Becca didn't trust the feral gaze consuming those two. They weren't hearing Patty through their bloodlust. So she tugged the woman closer to her side and shuffled backwards. Good thing, too. Tom kicked free and rolled into a crouch. In a blink, both men shifted to their animals. Werewolf versus snow leopard wasn't going to end well for anyone. Foolish to step into the middle of those razor-sharp claws and teeth. She preferred not to get shredded again. With a firm grip on Patty, Becca looked around for help. Still no alpha or police. Typical. Always alone. A blood-curdling snarl drew Becca's attention back to the men. Fred's wolf lacked the grace and speed, but he knew how to fight with a terrifying viciousness. I have double material in here. I'm sorry if you're reading this on the screen. Becca's lungs seized and she struggled for air. Not now, she begged. Please, not now. But her mind succumbed. She was trapped again, helpless again, back in the cage, metal bars, rattling, stench turning her stomach, watching men forced to fight to the death, their blood and pain and fear used as entertainment by desert warlords betting on winners and losers. Tears filled her eyes. Her fists clenched. Another dead. She had failed. Again. No, this wasn't that. This couldn't be that. Stop. Think. Focus. She forced herself to take in the freezing temperature, the mountains behind the building, the weightlessness of having no camera around her neck. Right, Alaska. She was no longer a kidnapped photojournalist praying for rescue. Memory by memory, the past released its hold and breathing became easier. Patty lunged, but Becca hugged the woman to her chest. She couldn't stop the desert spectacle and save the men all those years ago, but by everything holy, she would protect Patty. Fred's wolf latched onto the throat of Tom's snow leopard. Tom clawed and batted, drawing more blood, but Fred held fast, victory assured. Patty lunged again and shrieked the cry of an animal caught in a metal trap, but Becca yanked backwards with all her strength. She swore she heard ghosts screaming from the past. She must stop the madness. Jail time would be worth it, penance for then and now. With one hand, she rummaged through her satchel for the alert whistle. Becca blasted loud and long. All the shifters in a six-block radius howled in pain, but at least that also included Fred releasing the snow leopard. Too bad the distraction didn't last, as he recovered first and bit again. Thankfully, Alpha Tate arrived, rubbing his ears. Fred, release him. Stand down, son. So that is our little segment there. And here are my initial thoughts. Now that we've sort of kind of got the flashback portion sorted out, the next big issue that jumps to my attention is how sparse this piece is with physical cues to place each body in time, space, and place, and where they are in relation to each other. I feel so conflicted with where I'm going with this because on the one hand, it's absolutely possible to understand what's happening in this scene without making any major changes. But on the other, it's the sparseness and the disconnected action beats also feel like we might be looking at a rough or a first draft. I just feel like there's so much more that this scene could do emotionally speaking. But the things that leave it feeling like a rough draft, they're all 
individually quite small. They're easy to fix. So I'm not saying that this whole thing needs to be rewritten or that there's something majorly wrong with it. I'm just saying that it's really easy to forget to include things on the page specifically when they already exist in imagination. And because they already exist in imagination, it can be difficult, sometimes impossible, to see that they don't exist on the page. And that particularly matters with this segment because it, from what the author explained, this scene is leading us up to the story's climax, which means that while the emotional investment and story immersion always matters, here's where it really matters. And these are the types of things that can rob your material and make it less than the best emotional immersive experience it can be. So on this first pass here, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to point out the things that I see. And I'm going to fill in the comments with the types of annoying and dare I say, sometimes maddening observations and nitpicky questions that editors and copy editors tend to ask. And we'll um, go from there. So I, um, I marked this at the very beginning saying that since we only have this small segment, we don't know what has already been said to position these characters in time, place, and space. So some of what I'm covering, some of what I'm talking about, it, it might be unnecessary, like it could all be set up, but because we only have what's here on the page, that's what we have to work with. So this is only just my comments, right? We're not working on any specific line editing or anything like that. So Patty yelled, stop it, you bloody bastards. That caught their attention. Tom's nose was bleeding and Fred sported a black eye, but they refused to let go of each other's throats. They panted hard and growled, their animals pushing to the fore. Patty strode toward the men. So bodies. This is our first physical cue on where the characters are in relation to each other. We don't know how close Patty was to Becca or how close the women are to the men. We just know that Patty is striding forward. But how far forward did she get? Where's her body in relation to everyone else? And this matters not because like, oh, we have to put all those tiny little details into the the manuscript, but it matters because characters are interacting with each other. They're not interacting with a void in a void. They're interacting with each other. And we have to abide by the laws of physics. Right. So Patty Stewart strode toward the men. I am not some freaking prize at a jousting match. Becca didn't trust the feral gaze consuming those two. They weren't hearing Patty through their bloodlust. So she tugged the woman closer to her side and shuffled backwards. So this is bodies again. Becca tugs Patty closer to her side, but Patty's already strode toward the men. So she's not by Becca's side at all, right? So did Becca reach out and grab her bicep, snag her shirt, wrap an arm around her shoulder, her waist? Was she holding on to a wrist and pulling her backwards? Because we don't know where those two bodies are in relationship with each other, tug is just a disconnected action. Nothing that we have read so far actually gives us the material that we need for the mental movie to play and connect those actions to each other in a sequence. It's just action, information, action. They're not connected to each other because we don't know where the bodies are. So the next thing it says is good thing, too. Tom kicked free, rolled to a crouch. In a blink, both men shifted to their animals. Werewolf versus snow leopard wasn't going to well end well for anyone. And this is another bodies issue where it says good thing too. That wording 
followed by the actions of the fighting men, that implies that the women were very close and in danger of getting caught into the mix. But because we're not given any cues to place those bodies in time, place, and space, this is also disconnected. And so any tension or motion that could have come from them being too close to the fight, it's lost to noise. And, and we're killing our own tension. And this matters because this is a scene where tension is not coming from the fight. It's coming from the character's own point of view, her own connecting what's happening now to what happened in the past. So we need to be looking for any other ways we can ramp up the tension and give that like readers want to know what's happening. They're emotionally invested. They they're waiting for this outcome, right? Any other little things we can do to increase that is going to help this scene. We don't want to lose any of those opportunities. So after the good thing to sentence, then the next sentence would say foolish to step into the middle of those razor sharp claws and teeth. She preferred not to get shredded again. And this is a flow issue here. So this thought it supports that the women were being too close to the men, but because the physical cues that are leading to it are disconnected, it becomes more of an afterthought. It's noise. And personally, if this was me, I would keep an eye on the thought action speech issue and I would move this so that it actually sits up in one of the earlier paragraphs between they weren't hearing Patty through their bloodlust and where she tugged the woman closer. So it would be more a case of, Becca didn't trust the feral gaze consuming those two. They weren't hearing Patty through their bloodlust. Better, it would be foolish to step into the middle of those razor sharp claws and teeth. She preferred not to get shredded again. So she tugged the woman closer to her side and shuffled backwards. So we're giving the reader the motivation, the thoughts that are going through the character's head and then the action that followed from them rather than having all that action happen and then have the character's thoughts sort of show up after the fact. Next, we have the sentence that says, with a firm grip on Patty, Becca looked around for help. Still no alpha or police, typical always alone. And a firm grip on Patty is bodies again. This is another action, right? So first Becca tugged Patty closer to her side. Now she's gripping Patty. But because we don't have the physical cues for what happened earlier, we don't have a way to see what's happening here. Is she gripping Patty's arm? Does she have a hand around her waist, a hold on her shirt? Like it when we use these actions that just say, you know, so-and-so tugged so-and-so, so-and-so did this to so-and-so, without the accompanying spatial relationship between the characters it becomes vague to the point of meaninglessness. We just know an action happened, but we don't have the visual movie to tie it all together to give us that sense of being there or being a part of what's happening. A blood-curling snarl, snarl drew Becca's attention back to the men. Fred's wolf lacked grace and speed, but he knew how to fight with terrifying viciousness. So what we're dealing with here is another flow issue because here Becca turns her attention back to the men. Actually, this might be more of an anchoring thing. But anyway, she turns her attention back to the men, and then we get a thought from her on what's happening. But the part that's between those two, the part that would actually show us what she's seeing and then lead into her commentary on that, that's missing. And I expect that the reason for this is because this is a cozy and it has to go light on violence. 
And so this is an attempt to work around the details that we just completely blitz the details. They don't exist. And we're just responding to the aftermath of it, that Fred's wolf lacked grace and speed, but he knew how to fight with terrifying viciousness. So the, I understand the issue of needing to avoid violence, but for Becca's thoughts to mean anything here in a sort of feeling, emotional investment sense, we need to see something, however small it is, even if that something is Becca turning her head to avoid seeing it. She needs to be we need to know what it is so that her comment about the grace and the speed actually has means anything. Otherwise, it's just a description of it's a commentary on something that we have no idea what happened. The next sentence in here is Becca's lungs seized and she struggled for air. And this is an anchoring issue. So this is the start of the flashback. And here, right here, before the flashback starts, that's where we need the trigger that connects the present to the past, whether it's the blood or the sounds or whatever it is that's going on in Becca's psyche. We need to have that thing connect present to past. And I mean, we talked about that a little bit in the um, last week's episode when we were doing the flashback sequence, but I'm pointing it out here because it, it ha I didn't fix it. It still needs to be done. Not now, she begged, please not now. But her mind succumbed. She was trapped again, helpless again, back in the cage, metal bars rattling, stench turning her stomach, watching men forced to fight to the death. Their blood and pain and fear uses entertainment by desert warlords betting on winners and losers. Tears filled her eyes, her fists clenched. Another dead. She had failed again. No, this wasn't that. This couldn't be that. Stop, think, focus. She forced herself to take in the freezing temperature, the mountains behind the building, the weightlessness of having no camera around her neck. Right, Alaska. She was no longer a kidnapped photojournalist praying for rescue. Memory by memory, the past released its hold and breathing became easier. Patty lunged, but Becca hugged the woman to her chest. So we're back to the bodies issue. So this is the second time Patty lunges. And without a sense of where the bodies are in time, space, and place, plus not being able to see whatever the women are seeing, lunge on its own isn't enough to add value. So to be able to feel or connect with this desperation that I think this is trying to convey desperation that Patty is just trying to get to those men. But because we don't ever have that articulated, we don't have a way to connect with it and just her lunging isn't enough to give us that. Lunging shows us emotion, but it doesn't, it, it could mean so much, you know? So, and so much by as in many different things, but it's, it's vague. It, it doesn't actually tell us what's happening. So is, is Patty trying to get to Fred or to Tom? Is she trying to stop the fight? What is Becca afraid will happen if Patty reaches those men? I mean, we sort of have a sense from earlier where it said it's not smart to get between those teeth and, and everything, but are these men so crazed in that bloodlust that they they would tear her to shreds too now a lot of that might have already been set up before this scene hit us we don't know because we haven't seen those details and if they have been set up then this will probably maybe sort of not need to be filled in but it's still going to feel stronger if we have a way to connect with what's going on inside her soul when what what is what is her intent here why is she fighting so hard to get to those men and because this is Becca's point of view, we can't really know what's going on in Patty. 
But what we we can see through Becca's point of view is what Becca believes her motivations are, what Becca thinks Patty is trying to accomplish, why Becca is trying to stop her. And all of that is missing from here. And adding any of that is going to give this so much more emotional intensity without adding any violence, any blood, anything graphic or gory, because it's all taking place inside their own hearts and thoughts and feelings. So the initial thing, the question that the author had initially asked was, you know, about increasing tension for the scene that she had chosen to do it using flashbacks. And the flashback was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant uh, storytelling technique. But there's so much more surrounding that flashback that could also add to the tension of the scene. And we do it by making sure we're inside the characters as we understand their fears, we understand their intent. And and that sets up the conflict. Like we have conflict going on between Patty and Becca right now and that Patty is trying to do something and Becca's trying to stop her. But the what of all of that is left very hazy and vague, only that Patty is trying to lunge and Becca is holding on to the woman. And there's so much room here to expand upon that with just little tiny snippets of knowledge or detail to get us closer into the scene. And that's what I'm talking about when I say it feels or reads a little bit like a rough draft or first draft is because it's giving us these beat by beat, play by play of what's happening, but it's missing the inner life of the characters that often get inserted into later drafts as you have a deeper understanding of where the characters are coming from and what they want and what's driving them and so forth. So the next scene here, um, so Patty lunch, right? So that's the second time. And then it says Patty lunch, but Becca hugged the woman to her chest. So this is another body issue because Becca was gripping Patty. Now Patty lunges again. We never saw how Becca gripped Patty. So we have no mental image to shift from gripping to hugging. Becca had already pulled Patty close to her side. So how is gripping plus close to her side different from hugging? And how does she hug without letting go of the grip? These are all body movements that you have to understand. If you're going to put them on the page, you have to understand how they're actually playing out in real time. Because if you don't, then you get these disconnected, this happened, this happened, and you get the intent, but not the full meaning the full implication of it and again like this be perfectly understandable for somebody who's just reading through it like there's no question they get it it's not confusing or anything like that it would stand as it is but if you want to really tighten this up and make it deeper and and pull the reader into the scene and make the scene as deep and as vicarious as possible then these are the types of things that you have to pay attention to so the next, oh, so Patty lunged, but Becca hugged the woman to her chest. She couldn't stop the desert spectacle and save the men all those years ago, but by everything holy, she would protect Patty. Fred's wolf latched onto the throat of Tom Snow Leopard. Tom clawed and batted, drawing more blood, but Fred held fast, victory assured. Patty lunged again. So now this is the third lunge for Patty. And shrieked the cry of an animal caught in a metal trap. So this is a character thing. So these are fantastic physical cues for showing the reader anguish and distress. But we still, again, are missing any accompanying insight to what's going on inside her head. Like the why of the attempt. Why is she so desperate to get to those men? And the lead up towards it, they're probably in the the story leading up to this segment, probably covered a lot of that stuff and connected us to how the woman was feeling and, and what her 
why she was even here in this parking lot to begin with. But it still would benefit likely. Again, I don't know what came before this. Maybe putting it here would be overkill. But I still have a tendency to think that highlighting that depth of emotion would be something you'd want to do here. Because without that, a lot of the emotional weight of what's happening here is is diminished. It's lost. So Patty lunged again and shrieked the cry of an animal caught in a metal trap. But Becca yanked backwards with all her strength. So now we're in the another body issue. Becca yanked backwards with all her strength. So Becca was hugging Patty. Patty lunged again. Did she break free of Becca's grasp? Has she been fighting and struggling to get loose? Becca can't yank Patty back unless she's still gripping her and Patty has broken free of the hug. So we need these physical movements, not just to anchor the bodies in time, place, and space, but also to give us the emotional weight of the struggle. And without that, they're just disconnected actions. They're there on the page. They're they're giving us the action beat, but we don't feel anything about them. Just this is happening. She swore she heard ghosts screaming from the past. She must stop the madness. Jail time would be worth it. Penance for then and now. With one hand, she rummaged through her satchel for the alert wish, whistle. So the with one hand is a body thing again. Does this mean that she only ever had one hand on Patty to begin with? Does it mean she let go? If one hand is letting go, wouldn't she also be stressed about losing her grip? By not getting deeper into her head and walking us through what she's thinking and feeling, we're losing just a fantastic opportunity to increase the tension without increasing the violence. Then it says, um, Becca blasted loud and long. All the shifters in a six-block radius howled in pain, but at least that also included Fred releasing the snow leopard. Too bad the distraction didn't last as he recovered first and bit again. So this is a conflict issue. Becca has just made a huge sacrifice, right? She's breaking the law and she's risking jail to stop this fight. Those are her stakes. She made this risk. Did it work? Was it worth it? But by moving so quickly without reflecting on those stakes, the stakes become completely lost. And so what could have been another fantastic opportunity for increasing tension without increasing violence is lost too. So that's just like, it's fine, it works. But if we want to increase the tension, this would have been a really fantastic way to do it because by focusing on the stakes of blowing that whistle. And when the author sent in the material, she mentioned that this wasn't originally part of the plot. And she went back and rewrote part of it to make sure that it wasn't like just a, you know, coincidence that she happened to have that whistle on her. And it's already set up the fact that the whistle is illegal in this town. So the setting for it is all for the conflict, for the tension is all there already. Why not use it? Why not really focus in on the cost of that sacrifice and the question of, wait, what? It didn't stop them. They're still fighting. So was it even worth it, right? There, there's so much that could be done there. The next sentence says, thankfully, Alpha Tate arrived rubbing his ears. So this is a body issue. How did Alpha Tate arrive? Was he on foot? Was he in a vehicle? So the way this reads right now, he just sort of materializes out of nowhere. But even if that's accurate, because this is paranormal, maybe that's how they travel. I don't know. So maybe he just showed up out of nowhere and that's the way it's supposed to be. But even if that's accurate, 
we still need something to show us how he looks, how he feels, just that his body is there. It's not just like, thankfully, Alpha Tate arrived, and then that's it, right? He's arrived. Where's his body in relation to every other body's? Like, what's his reaction? Is he uh, upset? Like, what's going on, right? So the rubbing his ears part is a character thing, right? So presumably he's shown up here because of the whistle. Um, but now that he's here, does he have any reaction at all to what he's seeing? Like these two shapeshifters are tearing each other, tearing each other bloody. So he's just rubbing his ears, his ears and he's like, Fred, release him, stand down, son. But the way this reads, it could just as easily be more of a, hey, boys, would you please stop fighting so I can talk with his lawbreaker about blowing that whistle type thing? Or maybe he's truly concerned about the fight itself. We don't know because we haven't been given any information. And then when we look at him rubbing his ears, my question is, does that make sense to this story? Like, I don't know. Maybe it does because I don't know the rest of the story. So this is an actual genuine question. It's not a, a rhetoric like where I think I already know the answer. So does it make sense to this story and this scene that the effect of the whistle has already worn off on the men? They're back to fighting. The only thing we're told about Alpha Tate's arrival is he's still rubbing his ears. Like, it's still bothering him. That's all we know about him. Like, that just seems to me to be the least important thing about this character arriving on the scene. So those were my comments, uh, my thoughts, I should say, the questions I was asking myself about this. And I'm going to attempt to do a line edit here. But I'm doing so on the understanding that I really don't know anything. I don't know this story. I don't know the characters. So I'm going very light on this. And I'm not inserting. There's places where there's detail that I feel should be inserted. And I'm not. Because I don't know. And I don't want to invest all a whole bunch of time in it. And then it be completely worthless to the person who had asked for help. So I'm going to go as light as I can on this. So my first line edit is with... The first line where it says, Patty yelled, stop it, you bloody bastards. And I just deleted the word it because it's kind of redundant. Just stop, you bloody bastards is just as effective. Um, it, it Probably in real life, the way that we would speak, the dialogue would be stop it. But reading it, it just becomes redundant. So I just deleted that out. That caught their attention. Then I added a line where I said, the men froze, stared. And I at that point, I, I'm, I'm interjecting and pulling stuff from different parts of what already exists. And here's why. The original said that caught their attention. Tom's nose was bleeding and Fred sported a black eye. But we're told it caught their attention, but we don't actually see them do anything. The assumption is that maybe both of the men stopped and looked at Patty, but it's not there on the page. I have no idea. Uh, stared is often a very overused word, but because it doesn't, it's not here anywhere else, I got to use it. Ha ha ha. But I don't, you know, you might want to, this is just there. It's a placeholder to say we need some kind of movement beat from the men to indicate that they are aware and they stop fighting. That's what they caught their attention means, right? So they froze, stared. The original would have been, I don't even know anymore, but I i put the men froze, stared, 
and then went right into, but refused to let go of each other's throats. That gives us an image of the fight has stopped, but they're still in that aggressive pose. And I did this because we have all these positioning issues with the bodies. And sometimes the best and easiest way to fix positioning issues is to break up the action, right? To try and get it all into a chronological order to give the brain the material it needs to make its own movie. So I took the phrase, the line that said, Patty strode toward the men, I'm not some freaking prize at jousting match, and moved it all the way up here. So now it reads, the men froze, stared, but refused to let go of each other's throats. Patty strode toward the men. I am not some freaking prize at a jousting match. Now we get Tom's nose was bleeding. Fred sported a black eye. They both panted hard, growling, animals pushing to the fore. So I, I added the word both, and I changed growled their animals pushing to the fore to, to, to growling. I did all of this to adjust for the pulling an original paragraph apart and splitting up the information. So now we have, as far as bodies go, Patty yells to stop. The men freeze. They stare, but they're still in the fighting position. Patty strides towards them. We see the damage that's already been done to them, and we know that they're both still in this aggressive stage. The whole, their animals are trying to come out. And then we get Becca assessing and analyzing it. Becca didn't trust the feral gaze consuming those two. They weren't hearing Patty through the bloodlust. I changed their bloodlust to the bloodlust because there's a lot of multiples here and the bloodlust applies to both of them. So just a tiny tweak. They weren't hearing Patty through the bloodlust. And then I added, and it would be, and moved the part about foolish to step into the middle of those razor sharp claws and teeth up here. Becca didn't trust the feral gaze consuming those two. They weren't hearing Patty through the bloodlust and it'd be foolish to step into the middle of those razor sharp claws and teeth. And now I added body movement to solve the question of where are these two women in relationship to each other? How did Patty grab Becca and tug her and all of that? Okay, so she quick stepped to catch up locked an arm around Patty's waist and pulled the woman backwards. And I deleted the tugging. I deleted closer to her side and shuffled. Just, we want to know where her body is. How did she did this? So Becca didn't trust the frail gaze consuming those two. They weren't hearing Patty through the bloodlust and it'd be foolish to step into the middle of those razor sharp claws and teeth. I deleted the phrase that said she preferred not to get shredded again because in this little segment, there hasn't really been any debate about Becca approaching those men or feeling like she should. It's all been Patty. And so unless there's a reason that that phrase connects to something else in a way that the reader's going to feel something missing by it not being there, it works just as well with it being deleted. So it'd be foolish to step into the middle of those razor sharp claws and teeth. She quick stepped to catch up, locked around an arm around Patty's waist and pulled the woman backwards. Next phrase, next sentence. Good thing too. 
Tom kicked free and rolled into a crouch. In a blink, both men shifted to their animals. Werewolf versus snow leopard wasn't going to well, end well for anyone. Becca looked around for help. Still no alpha or police. Typical. Always alone. A blood-curdling snarl drew Becca's attention back to the men. I think, actually, I would change Becca here to the word her because the, the sentence above us told us used her name. Becca looked around for help. We know we're talking about Becca, so it's just going to read more smoothly if we don't repeat her name again in the very next sentence. So a blood-curdling snarl drew her attention back to the men. And here's where I added detail, because we needed something to transition us from the present moment into the flashback. This is a placeholder. I'm not saying this is how it should be written. I'm not saying it's even written well, but we needed something to start the trigger off. And this is just a really rushed example of how that might look in real life. A blood-curling snarl drew her attention back to the men. They were fully entangled now, a vicious blur of fur and teeth and bones, grappling, snapping, fighting to maim and kill. And I deleted Fred's wolf lacked grace and speed, but he knew how to fight with terrifying viciousness because it doesn't add. Now that we filled in some detail, that doesn't add anything to the story. And it just kind of gives us a commentary that we need the inner dialogue from the characters. But this is not the type of inner dialogue that we're looking for. And since in, I believe, and I could be wrong, that it had been used as a way to bypass having to show violence, now that we've kind of given some detail without going into detail on the violence, we can delete the workaround. So a blood-curling snarl drew her attention back to the men. They were fully entangled now, a vicious blur of fur and teeth and bones, grappling, snapping, fighting to maim and kill. This is now new again, because I'm trying to connect present to past. Her stomach roiled and her lungs seized. She'd seen this before, had been here before. The next line would have originally read, Becca's lungs seized and she struggled for air, but I moved that lung seized part up higher to where it said her stomach roiled and her lungs seized. She'd, been, she'd seen this before, had been here before. She struggled for air. Not now, she begged, please not now. So that's an example of how you can transition into a, a, a flashback by using the moment to connect it to the past. But you need to have that. You need to have something in the moment that connects to the past. It can't just be saying these two guys were fighting. Not now, she begged, please not now. But her mind succumbed. She was trapped again, helpless again, back in the cage, metal bars rattling, stench turning her stomach, watching men forced to fight to the death. Their blood and pain and fear used as entertainment by desert warlords betting on winners and losers. Tears filled her eyes, her fists clenched, another dead. She had failed again. No, this wasn't that. This couldn't be that. Stop, think, focus. She forced herself to take in the freezing temperature, the mountains behind the building, the weightlessness of having no camera around her neck. Right, Alaska. She was no longer a kidnapped photojournalist praying for rescue. Memory by memory, the past released its hold and breathing became easier. Now, here's where we were. We would have gone right back into Patty lunged. And here's where I started kind of tried to change that up to give us a, a little bit better sense of what's actually happening. But 
again, this is a placeholder. The When you know the story, which I don't, then you have the material to actually really develop develop it and give us more of that physical tension. So Patty struggled against her grasp, trying to tear free. Becca held on and hugged the woman tight instead of Becca hugged the woman to her chest. Becca, because she's already got her, right? So it it doesn't make sense for her to then to, anyway, we already talked about all that. So but Patty struggled against her grasp, trying to tear free. Becca held on and hugged the woman tight. She couldn't stop the desert spectacle and save the men all those years ago, but by everything holy, she would protect Patty. That's how it originally ended. And I added a little bit more in terms of words to fill out, to fully take us full circle on what her thinking is going on. Why is she holding on to Becca so tightly? So now it reads, she couldn't stop, sorry, I said Becca so tightly. Why is she holding on to Patty so tightly? Um, she couldn't stop the desert spectacle and save the men all those years ago, but by everything holy, she would protect Patty from what was happening here. And that takes us full circle and completes the emotional connection of what's going on inside her own thoughts. So the next thing would have said Fred latched onto the throat of Tom's snow leopard. And I changed that slightly because we, we're not seeing the fight. We can't see the fight because of the need to avoid graphic violence. But I felt that we could clarify the movement a little so that we had the tools to make the mental movie. And I did that by just a few small word changes. Instead of Fred's wolf latched onto the throat of Tom Snow Leopard, I said Fred's wolf found the throat of Tom Snow Leopard and latched on. So you actually get the image there of a, of a jaw doing what it's doing instead of just it just latched on magically by itself without any connected physical movement on either end of it. Right? Tom clawed and batted. And originally this would have said Tom clawed and batted, drawing more blood, but Fred held fast, victory assured. And I changed this slightly to, again, give us that sense of seeing something with as it would play out without actually seeing the, the graphicness of it, Tom clawed and batted, drawing blood, trying to escape the deadly bite force, but Fred held fast, victory assured. Now we have Patty's movement again. This would have said Patty lunged again, and I'm trying to work with this to get it closer to how the steps would play out in our mind if we were watching a movie. So the original would have been Patty lunged again and shrieked with the cry of an animal caught in a metal trap, I think. But Becca yanked backwards with all her strength. So now it reads, Patty pried at Becca's arms, shrieking with the anguish of an animal caught in a trap. Becca squeezed harder and inch by inch dragged them both further from the violence. So small changes, and I'm not saying... That's the way to do it. These are placeholders. But what I'm trying to do is get that physical movement established so we can just the seamlessly, the movie's playing and we keep on going, right? So she swore she heard ghosts screaming from the past. And here I added more inner life, more inner world. I could be completely wrong, but I, I, I just had to put something here because we need to understand 
why these actions are taking place. We need to understand the character's frame of thought. So why is she holding on to Patty so tightly? What is she trying to do here? And we clarified some of it by adding that phrase that she would protect Patty from what was happening here, meaning she's trying to keep her from getting shredded by getting in the middle of those in that entanglement. So now she swore she heard ghosts screaming from the past. Saving Patty wasn't enough. She had to stop this madness. So originally it just said she swore she heard ghosts screaming from the past. She must stop the madness. And for her to do this thing, to put herself at risk, we needed to have something more than just she must stop the madness. So that's why saving Patty wasn't enough. Just holding on to this woman wasn't enough. She had to do more than this. And that leads us into the next action. So it's thought, action, speech, cause, effect. Saving Patty wasn't enough. She had to stop this madness. Jail time would be worth it. Penance for them then and now. Now, originally, this would have led into, with one hand, um, she rummaged through her satchel for the alert whistle. And... But we have these these body issues, right? So I'm trying to find a way to give us what we need without overdoing it on descriptive body movement. So saving Patty wasn't enough. She had to stop this madness. Jail time would be worth it. Penance for then and now. She dug her hip hard into Patty's side, grabbed onto her belt loops for a better hold, and with her other hand, rummaged through her satchel for the alert whistle. So that was my way of giving us body the the connecting one movement to the next without wasting a lot of word space on stuff that's just boring before we can move into so next it would have been she found the she rummaged through her satchel for the alert whistle and then it would have just gone becca blasted long and loud but that again cuts out some of the necessary tension and the necessary movement. So I changed it to where she dug her hip hard into Patty's side, grabbed onto her belt loops for a better hold, and with her other hand rummaged through her satchel for the alert whistle. Found it. Patty slipped loose. Becca shoved the whistle between her teeth, grabbed Patty's wrist, and blasted long and loud. So we actually have that tension through movement now. Like she, she's losing, to, to do one thing, she's losing the other. And it's how she's, you know, finagling her way to keep control over the situation. All the shifters in a six block, block radius howled in pain. That included Fred's wolf. He released the snow leopard, but the distraction didn't last. The wolf recovered and bit again. So those are all really small minor line edits to the original, which read all the shifters in the six block radius howled in pain, but at least that also included Fred releasing the snow leopard. Too bad the distraction didn't last as he recovered first and bit again. And now it reads all the shifters in the six block radius howled in pain. That included Fred's wolf. He released the snow leopard, but the distraction didn't last. The wolf recovered first and bit again. The next sentence was, thankfully, Alva Tate arrived, rubbing his ears. Fred, release him, stand down, son. 
And this is where I was like, we need to, you know, how did he arrive? You know, what's going on with him? You know, does he not care about what's going on with these, this fight? Or is he just there for the whistle in his ears? And then he just, you know, randomly also, oh, they're fighting, stand down, leave it, stop that. I didn't know. And to fix this would have required probably another paragraph of making stuff up out of nowhere that I didn't have any clue if I'd be right or wrong. So I just didn't like, this is the end of it. And so I, I was like, well, we know we need this, but I don't even know what to do with it because I don't have the, any sense of what happened, who out, who this alpha is in the story, what he looks like. Did he just materialize out of nowhere? Like, is that how people travel in this paranormal world? Or did he show up on foot? Like, I don't know. So I wasn't going to go spend two paragraphs making it up and then just be completely wrong. But it does still need to be fixed. And that's that's what I've got. Um, if we have time, I can read the whole thing through as if I accepted all changes. And if we don't, then you can find it online. Yeah, let's do it. Let's read it. Okay. <clears throat> so Patty yelled, stop, you bloody bastards. That caught their attention. The men froze, stared, but refused to let go of each other's throats. I think it's supposed to be each other's throats, but... I don't know. I'm not a copy editor. Patty strode toward the men. I am not some freaking prize at a jousting match. Tom's nose was bleeding. Fred sported a black eye. They both panted hard, growling, animals pushing to the fore. Becca didn't trust the feral gaze consuming those two. They weren't hearing Patty through the bloodlust, and it'd be foolish to step into the middle of those razor-sharp claws and teeth. She quick-stepped to catch up, locked an arm around Patty's waist, and pulled the woman backwards. Good thing, too. Tom kicked free and rolled into a crouch. In a blink, both men shifted to their animals. Werewolf versus Snow Leopard wasn't going to end well for anyone. Becca looked around for help. Still no alpha or police. Typical. Always alone. A blood-curdling snarl drew Becca's attention back to the men. They were fully entangled now, a vicious blur of fur and teeth and bones, grappling, snapping, fighting to maim and kill. Her stomach roiled and her lungs seized. She'd seen this before, had been here before. She struggled for air. Not now, she begged. Please, not now. But her mind succumbed. She was trapped again, helpless again, back in the cage, metal bars rattling, stench turning her stomach, watching men forced to fight to the death, their blood and pain and fear used as entertainment by desert warlords betting on winners and losers. Tears filled her eyes, her fists clenched. Another dead. She had failed again. No, this wasn't that. This couldn't be that. Stop. Think. Focus. She forced herself to take in the freezing temperature, the mountains behind the building, the weightlessness of having no camera around her neck right, Alaska. She was no longer a kidnapped photojournalist praying for rescue. Memory by memory, the past released its hold and breathing became easier. Patty struggled against her grasp, trying to tear free. Becca held on and hugged the woman tight. She couldn't stop the desert spectacle and save the men all those years ago, but by everything holy, she would protect Patty from what was happening here. Fred's wolf found the throat of Tom Snow Leopard and latched on. Tom clawed and batted, drawing blood, trying to escape the deadly bite force, but Fred held fast, victory assured. Patty pried at Becca's arms, shrieking with the anguish of an animal caught in a trap. Becca squeezed harder and inch by inch dragged them both further from the violence. She swore she heard ghosts screaming from the past. Saving Patty wasn't enough. She had to stop this madness. Jail time would be worth it. Penance for then and now. She dug her hip hard into Patty's side, dug fingers into her belt loops to keep hold, and with her other hand rummaged through her satchel for the alert whistle, found it. Patty slipped loose. Becca shoved the whistle between her teeth, grabbed Patty's wrist, and blasted long and loud. All the shifters in the six-block radius howled in pain. That included Fred's wolf. He released the snow leopard, but the distraction didn't last. The wolf recovered first and bit again. 
Thankfully, Alpha Tate arrived, rubbing his ears. Fred, release him. Stand down, son. And that's all I've got. That was fantastic. Thank you. Um, one of my, well, actually, my favorite part of these hack the craft sequences that we that we do from time to time is the line editing. I just love watching uh, the small changes that you make really flesh out the mental movie. And you use a line that that I don't I don't remember you ever using before or a phrase tension through movement and. It really worked when you when you did that. You were able to amp up or or hold on to the tension just by body positioning and and moving things. And I'd never actually thought of that before. That was was a great insight. Thank you. It's random. <laughs> <I don't laughs> it just comes out of my mouth. <laughs> well, sometimes these things come out of your mouth and, and they become things like thought, action, speech, but I'd never heard that particular one before. And yeah. I was, I was very taken by it. Another thing that I was really taken by is something that you mentioned, I think in the first episode when, when we were first looking at the material, uh, which was very good at that time. And one of the things you noted was the sparseness of the text when many times that's really good. Um, but by making a few simple changes, you were really able to bring out things that were there before, but weren't as obvious. And it's just always amazing how by making simple changes, uh, you get a dramatically different end product. That always surprises me too. And I know we're already pretty long, so I don't want to like go into a whole other tangent here. So I'm going to try and make this quick, but before this, we recorded the show, you and I had been talking about um, something completely unrelated. And I had made a comment about using description. Uh, There's just too much description in a particular paragraph. And that's not how description was supposed to work. Nobody cares about description that you use description as a way for the character's body to navigate the world around them and get from point A to B. That is when the description comes into play. But the same thing also applies to body movement. Like you don't just have a bunch of body movement going on for the sake of articulating every little thing the body does. Body movement is also a way to tell the story and it's the way that the character interacts with the world around them so in the case of description you're using that as a way to light the stage and set the scene so that the character's not just walking in a void and in the case of body movement you're you're doing it to 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 place to anchor that body in time and space and give us a sense of what actually is happening so that the movie can connect one movement to the next without vanishing and reappearing and whatnot. But it is a tool for height. Like you, you, it serves a purpose. It's not just body description for the sake of body description. You're get doing something with it. You have an agenda, which is to get that mental movie flowing. So if all you're doing is putting in a bunch of body movements because you think that they belong there, that's not going to work. There has got to be a reason that you're putting them there, and it's to keep the the movement consist like going from one thing to the next to the next. And that's why when you have a scene that involves <clears throat> walking to the sink, pulling out your cup, filling it with water, 
that's where you go. She made a cup of coffee and you Mm -hmm. skip all that other detail. But when you're working with characters who are interacting with each other and there's physical connection between those characters and one person's movement is going to affect another person's um, uh, agenda. Like, you know, there's that clash of contest. One person wants something, the other person's trying to stop it. You've got to have those movement beats in there for the rest of the tension to feel real and alive. Otherwise, you you don't know what's happening. All right. So one last thank you to MZ Lowe for sending this material. It has, it has been a, an educational, quite an educational process for us to, to, to walk through this with Taylor. And I, for one, really appreciate it. So MZ, thank you. And Taylor, make that call out for additional material. Yeah, guys. Okay. We, we managed to stretch one small submission of like 800 words and some amazing questions into five episodes of just fantastic deep dive. And next week I'm probably going to have to take a break <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and not do anything super heavy lifting. But that means that we are open now for more submissions. If you have something specific that you're struggling with, a question that you feel you could really benefit getting answers to with a practical example to go along with it, please send it our way. Uh, just because I tear it apart and do it a different way does not mean it was bad to begin with. It's that you're sacrificing your material to allow us all, including myself, to learn something that we can use to grow and become better writers and put better stories out into the world. So please and thank you. Well put. Uh, Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this entire uh, series. We will be back with you again next Tuesday. Thanks for being here, guys. We'll see you next week.